Amen. You know, uh, while I was sitting here singing those songs, I was thinking, how many other churches and other people in this town and in other towns across our country and across the world are right now worshiping the same God we are, singing to the same God that we are, uh, and God is attentive to all of it at the same time, and it's all this fragrant aroma going up to Him. And as we're praying toward Easter, I thought, you know, let's take a minute and pray for the other churches in town moving toward Easter, that they will be ready, uh, that if God needs to do something in them to make them ready, that He will, that they will be ready, that they will invite, and that the Holy Spirit, even this morning, will descend here, but also in the other churches in town. Heavenly Father, um, thank you that we are part of a great big kingdom. Uh, it's not just our church, not just our castle, but we're part of your, your big mission, your big church, and there's a lot of great things going on uh, across the country and across the world. There's also a lot of horrible things going on uh, across the country and across the world. And so, God, I, I ask that, uh, Holy Spirit, you would be present in the Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches here in, in Carson City, Carson Valley, Dayton. Uh, Holy Spirit, this morning, be at those services in a unique way. I pray that people would walk into those doors and they would experience you. Uh, and through experiencing you, they would experience life change, uh, salvation, encouragement, whatever it is they need from you, uh, that they would experience that. And God, as we do move toward Easter, there's going to be a lot of services on Easter. Uh, here at Common Ground at, at the other churches, I just pray that you would lead those organizing those services, lead the people in those bodies to invite their neighbors, their friends, their family, uh, strangers on the street. Uh, but that, that would be a day where we get to celebrate kingdom-wide uh, the things that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. So the other day, I was in Walmart, and if you've noticed, they've got security cameras, and as you walk out, they've got one of those big TVs up there letting you know, you know, people are being watched. And I'm walking out, and I look up, and I'm like, I see some guy on the screen, and I notice he's balding in the back. And I don't know why, but that's the first thing I noticed. I'm like, How did that that's me. <laughs> Turns out that the camera was behind me, and the screen was right there, and here I am looking at my head, and yeah, it's true. I'm, I'm starting to go bald in the back here and in here, and you know, um, good old-fashioned male pattern baldness. Some of you in here I see are experiencing that. Ed, you look good. Um, now, imagine, okay, we'll use Ed for an example. Let, let's say Ed, who uh, has a little bit less hair than even I do, say Ed knocks on your door, and you open it up, and he comes in, and he's like, hey, I've got this great hair-saving potion all you got to do is rub it on your head, and it grows thick and beautiful, uh, and it's cheap today, $25 a bottle. And you'd probably ask, well, Ed, do you use it? So I swear by it. Use it every day. W would you buy that potion from a bald guy? <laughs> probably, probably not, right? Because you would look at it and go, well, obviously, it's not working because it's not doing what you say it's going to do. In a similar way... And we're in this series about, you know, the skeptics' questions about religion, about Christianity, about the church as we go through Luke. In the same way, when non-believers look at Christians and look at the church and they see people that are living selfish lives, greedy lives, uh, gossiping among themselves, fighting among themselves, and, and just look like the rest of the world, they rightly conclude that we have nothing special. Kind of like that potion that doesn't grow hair. They look at these churches and the horrible things happening or Christians that are wounding them and they go, they're preaching this Jesus, but there must not be any truth to it because there's no evidence of life change. 
Christopher Hitchens wrote a book, God is Not Great. I don't recommend it. But he says this in it. Religious faith, as evidenced by ordinary followers, is the single strongest proof that there is no God. This is one of the biggest stumbling blocks for people coming to faith in the one true God that Christians don't actually live like the Bible would say. It is the, one of the greatest stumbling blocks is the hypocrisy of Christians. And what's a, what's a hypocrite? A hypocrite is somebody who wears a mask. A hypocrite is someone who claims one thing and lives something else. Uh, a bald person claiming to use this potion that grows hair. Christians living just like everybody else is hypocrisy. And so here's the question that we're going to ask and answer. Does the hypocrisy of Christians prove that the gospel message in the Bible is false? Now, let's be honest for just a minute. Isn't this a legit question? And maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've been in church growing up and you've experienced, I've experienced this. Being in church and seeing how Christians behave, and I've also experienced this looking in the mirror and seeing at times how I behave and, and asking the question, is this real? Is this legit? These people claim to love God, but they're all about themselves, their own power, their own authority, their own clan, their own church, or, or whatever it is. How is it that God can claim to have a life-changing impact on lives by giving the Holy Spirit, but yet it's not happening? Well, I would argue it is happening. And so I'm going to answer that question right up front. And I think you can guess my answer, no. No, the hypocrisy of Christians does not negate the truth of the gospel. But the hypocrisy of Christians does reveal something that we need to take note of for ourselves, but also for the church as a whole. Turn to Luke, if you would. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. This is our second week in this series in Luke, and, and we're looking at uh, objections to faith. And Luke, who is a Gentile, not a Jew, uh, he was a doctor. He was a great historian. He wrote two books, Luke and Acts. Uh, both have been used in archaeology. Uh, they have never been proven wrong by any discovery. In fact, they have frequently been proven true by things that they've claimed. So Luke is a great historian. Uh, Luke, we saw last week, wrote to a guy named Theophilus, another Gentile, who has heard about Jesus, and he's going, eh, is that true? And Luke is writing to him to say, hey, I've done the research. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. The things you're hearing, they're true. And I want you to be certain that they're true. It's not a faith as in like, I hope this is true. We can be certain that what, the, what we've heard about Jesus is actually true. And so Luke goes through, and there's several things that Luke tells us that the other gospels don't tell us. And today we're going to see one of those uh, encounters and a parable that is only in Luke. And I think it's Unique, and I think it also answers this question about hypocrisy among Jesus followers or among God followers. So look at Luke chapter 10. We're going to be in verse 25. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. Luke writes, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. Who wants to answer that question? <laughs> this is a religious leader. He's a lawyer. Uh, sometimes they're also called scribes. 
They were very well versed in the Torah, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the prophets as well. And we could list all those. They were lawyers, meaning they understood the law. And by the law, we're not talking like our law. We're talking the Mosaic law, the law that currently is in our Old Testament. This guy, this lawyer, is an expert in that law. And he asked Jesus this question. Now, you'll see his intentions aren't righteous. Uh, the, the scribes, these lawyers, they hung out with the Pharisees a lot, and they had this really cool religious club, and, and only a few people were allowed in. And so he's asking this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as a religious leader, the scribe, he knows the answer, or he thinks he knows the answer. He's got it all together. He doesn't need anything. You know, because he's trying to test Jesus. He's putting him to the test. He's not humbly coming to Jesus saying, hey, I want to learn from you. He's trying to trick him and prove Jesus isn't who he's claiming to be, that is the Son of God and the Messiah. So he asks him the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, notice how he asks the question. This is a very religious question. He's asking what I must do. That is what religion does. Religion teaches what you must do to earn right standing with God or to earn eternal life. Every religion, and by the way, when Christianity becomes just a religion, it's the same as all the others, that it just gives you a list of do's and don'ts. This is in your notes. The religious person wants to know the right actions to earn their standing with God. And here, Jesus, it's interesting how he tells the parable to answer the question, but he's going to really contrast true biblical faith, those who love God, with religion, because that's where the breakdown is. Let's step back or step up and let's look at society, look at the world. What's the problem people have often? It's with organized religion. I've heard this many times. Oh, I, you know, I believe in God, but I'm anti-organized religion. Well, guess what? Me too. <laughs> so was Jesus, yet... We are told to organize as we are here. So there's an aspect of that. But yet there's some truth in those claims of, of anti-religion. And, and Jesus was actually quite anti-religion. Because he's not going to answer his question. He's not going to give him the code that he wants to break to get eternal life. So here's what he, look at verse 26. Here's how Jesus responds. He says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So he puts it back on him. You're a lawyer. You understand the law. I mean, you're an expert. What does it say? And how does he answer? Verse 27, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He is quoting Deuteronomy 6. This guy knows his Bible. This guy has really good theology. Verse 28, Jesus says, you, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Jesus asks him, he answers correctly, good knowledge. Jesus says, now go live it. Go love God with all you are and love your neighbor. That is central to the Old Testament. That is central to the New Testament. Again, the greatest commandment. Jesus was asked elsewhere, what's the greatest commandment? This is the one he quotes. Love God with all you are. Now, and then love your neighbor as yourself. What's the problem with that if you're a religious person? How do you quantify love? It, you know, if I'm going to break the code to salvation, I want to know, do A, B, C, you know, I want to know the things to do. 
If I tell you, well, go love, well, how do I quantify that? How do I know if I've achieved it? How do I know? I, I need to know. That's why the Catholic Church has done a good job of giving the things to do. You know, you go to confession, and they have their sacraments. You do these certain things, and then you can measure it. Then you can have all the sin you want in your life. As long as you go to confession and then do your Hail Marys or whatever it is, you can earn your way back. And by the way, Protestant churches aren't a whole lot better. We do the same thing of creating these to-dos to make up. So he answers him, you're right. Love God with all you are. Go do it. Um, Jesus, who is God in flesh, is anti-religion. God has always been anti-religion. By anti-religion, I mean religion without a love for him because it starts with a love for him. Look at Psalm 51. It'll be on the screen. Psalm 51, 16 through 17. The psalmist writes this. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. God desires heart devotion, not religious action. Always. He wants our heart. This is what I love about true biblical Christianity, true faith, is that God wants you. For me, God wants me. I mean, that blows me away because I know me. I don't even like a lot of things about me, but God loves me and he wants a relationship with me. Same with, he wants you. He doesn't want your obedience. He does, but he wants that as a result of having you. He doesn't want you to come to church and be good and give 10. He doesn't want you to do all these things. He wants you. And then these things will happen. That's what we'll see. These things will happen because of this love relationship where he changes us. So he says, correct, you've got good theology. Now you need to add right action to your good theology. Go do it. And what does this lawyer do? Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now we're going to look at the parable, but this, this gives us an eye into this religious mindset. He wants to justify himself. What does that mean? We're actually going to see this in two weeks later in Luke because it's a repeating theme. To justify himself. To justify yourself in this context is you take what the law says, what Scripture says, your life doesn't line up, and instead of changing your life to align with God's will, you try and change the word so that it fits what you want to do anyway. That's what it means to justify yourself. Does that happen right now in the American church? <laughs> I want this to be true Therefore, I'm going to take this view of Scripture. I'm going to decide that it is not the infallible Word of God. Or I'm going to read certain things and go, eh, that was just culture then. That doesn't apply to us anymore. That's how we, even now, can justify ourselves, justify the way we want to live. Rather than letting the Word do its job and go, okay, here's what it's revealing in me. And by the way, that's what the Word does. That's what the Holy Spirit does through the Word kind of opens us up and reveals all the grossness still in there, and that's okay. <laughs> we let it do that, and then the Holy Spirit will cleanse us and change us. But here, this scribe is not interested in life change. He wants to justify himself. He, in his pride, in his religion, is good. Follow me. I know the business. I, I got it figured out. And so he asks him, well, who is my neighbor? Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, 
leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. This is the story he tells to answer the question, who is my neighbor? The lawyer wanted to basically find the loophole. Okay, who am I supposed to love and who do I not have to love? And in their mindset, their neighbor would be a fellow Jew. So I, I, I'm going to love people like me. For us, we might say, well, that's other people in the church. We should love one another. And we know that very clearly from Scripture. But other people, I, I don't have to love. You know, those, those dirty sinners in, in society, I don't have to love them. And Jesus here in his answer does not say, here's who your neighbor is. Instead, he describes how to be a neighbor. So this trek from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 18 miles. It was a, a very real path. It dropped about 3,000 feet as you went down, so it was very rocky. It was a great place for robbers to hang out. So this was a real situation that really could happen, uh, so they could picture this. And, and here's what happens. The guy goes down, he gets jumped, he gets robbed, left half dead. But in verse 31, lucky for him, a priest comes along. It doesn't get more religious than a priest. This priest is a descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses. They were the ones lined out from the time of giving of the Mosaic law that they would control the sacrifices in the temple. They would administer basically people's relationship with God. A priest should be very close to God. It is only a priest who can go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was once a year to offer prayers and to offer sacrifices. These priests were close to God, allegedly. And what does this priest do? He sees a fellow Jew. He is a Jew, his fellow Jew, that he crosses on the other side. You know, we could think now in our context, this is a pastor. So this is Paul. Paul's one of our pastors. One of us gets beat up and, and uh, Paul's going for, he rides his bike with his tights on. And Paul's riding his bike and he sees somebody in the ditch all beat up. And instead he's like, oh shoot. <laughs> Maybe that, and goes the other side and rides on. If you were watching that and you knew Paul's position as a pastor and this person as even part of the church, what would you think about him and about that church? They don't know what they're talking. They preach this stuff, but when the rubber meets the road, it doesn't actually work out. Well, that's why Jesus uses a priest, their religious leader, and he is, he's teaching them a lesson. And it's a very significant, and this is why they wanted to kill him. Because what he's saying is you attain eternal life by loving God and loving others. Not just believing that, but then going and doing it. And here, the first example he gives is one of their religious leaders disobeying that commandment. What he's saying is, here's this priest. He does not have eternal life. For them, these religious leaders, they'd hear that and go, if our priests can't have eternal life, what chance do we have? What chance do we have if, if the most religious person isn't saved? And he's not because he walks on the other side. The test is the love. So 
here's in your notes. A person can serve in significant positions in Jesus' name, but not have a heart for God. You'd be surprised if you knew how many people in seminary while training to be pastors actually get saved in seminary or how many unsaved people there are going through seminary and then eventually leading churches. Well, look at verse 32. Luckily, the darn priest goes by, but a Levite shows up. Now, a Levite was uh, an assistant to the priest. They worked in the temple also. They were consumed with religious activities as well. This might be for us uh, a deacon, if you had deacons, or, or maybe it's a small group leader. Uh, so this is one of our small group leaders. Uh, Preston's not here, so I'll pick on him. So Paul rides by on his bike. Preston drives by and sees and ducks down and, and continues on past. Another leader, somebody who's supposed to be an example, goes by on the other side. And again, what does this say about this religious person? Does not have eternal life. Religion is all about the dues. They were really good at the dues. But when it came to actual love, they didn't have that. Jesus had it out for these religious leaders. Jesus is picking on religion. What would Jesus say today if he came and looked at the state of, of Christianity in the world? I think people can rightly look at the church and go, I'm not sure what they have because of the things that have happened. Protestants and Catholics killing each other in the name of Jesus. In this town, two churches fought and even had legal fighting over the name of the church. One got mad at the other because their initials were too close to their name. And so there was, there was I mean, that's not the church. Rightly so. Imagine you're in, in you know, a judge or whatever, and, and this is a case coming before you between these two churches in town fighting over the initials of their name. And we, we're surprised then when we look at our community and see it's 95% unchurched because they look at the church and they go, you don't have anything to offer. You guys are just about yourself, bickering among yourselves. Or they watch the news and they see Christians picketing at gay parades or funerals. The average American gives 3 to 5% to charity. It's no better among Christians. The average churchgoer gives about 2.5%. So again, you look at so-called Christians and the world, and there's not much of a difference. So unfortunately, those who would claim that the hypocrisy of Christians proves that our religion is false, they have some merit in claiming that. The problem is what is being spewed as Christianity is not the heart of God. What is coming out in all those instances is not the heart of God. And you can just imagine, you know, God is fully sovereign and in control. He could step in and, and change it whenever he wants. So it's not past him. But you know, he looks at the things done in his name and he goes, that's not of me. That's not of me. If it's not of love, it's not of me. Now he gives an example. Back to Luke. Who comes along? A Samaritan. Two religious leaders didn't do it. A Samaritan comes along and ruins his day to help this person. Now, here's, here's who the Samaritans were. They lived in an area just north of, of Judea. The Samaritans were kind of a cross mix of Jews, you know, of Israelites and, and others. Uh, it goes back hundreds of years. Basically, the Jews hated the Samaritans, partly because of their, their pedigree, 
partly because of their religion. Their religion was a, a mishmash of religions. Their religion was a false religion. The Jews had the, the right belief. The Jews had the Old Testament. Their belief was true, but it hadn't gotten to a lot of them. It hadn't gotten to their hearts. This Samaritan, his belief was, was false. His religion was false. But here, he's the one used, Jesus uses as the example. Again, he's kind of kicking the Pharisees while they're down. These religious leaders that are listening, he's like, yeah, a lot of you aren't even saved, but look, a Samaritan, look at how good they can be. I mean, this is, why do you think they killed Jesus later? <laughs> I mean, Jesus just goes and just kind of pokes the bear, uh, knowing what was going to happen. So the Samaritan comes along, ruins his week, because he then takes the hurt man, the hurt Jew, takes him to an inn. Uh, puts, his own, puts him on his own animal, uses oil and wine. So this was medicine. He pulls out his own first aid kit. But notice before he does all that, what, what does the Samaritan experience that the other two don't? Compassion. Compassion. The Samaritan has a heart response to this man in the ditch. He feels something. Compassion. Compassion isn't just, oh, sucks to be you. Yeah, I feel sorry for you. But it's, it's a pity that leads to action. He feels compassion. He gets off and he goes over there. Now, remember, this scribe was seeking to justify himself. The Levite, uh, the priest, they probably justified themselves when they walked past. Oh, I have more important religious things to do. If I stop and help him, you know, these 100 people that I'm going to serve in God's name, they're going to be delayed. So it's not, they could justify it. Here, this Samaritan, he easily could have justified not helping. Well, that's a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We're definitely not neighbors. He hates me. They, I kind of hate him too. He could have justified it, but he instead steps out and does something with his compassion, loves him, serves him, takes care of him. And look at verse 36. Jesus turns it back to the scribe. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Notice that the scribe doesn't say Samaritan. Jesus in the parable refers to him as a Samaritan. This, this scribe just says, the one who showed him mercy. I mean, his disdain for this Samaritan is so evident. And he's like, that one did? He's like, you're right. Now go and do that. Go live it out. Jesus empowers his followers to actively help others from a heart of love and compassion. Loving God results in loving others. Not just friends, not just people like you, but what did Jesus say? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If the church did this well, how would, how would, what would the society have to say? If we as individuals did this well, it's attractive. It's beautiful when you see this kind of love carried out. and Then they can hear the theology, the doctrine, which is accurate, that life is found in Jesus alone. Good theology is not enough. Good action is not enough. You need both. Jesus isn't saying that this Samaritan is saved. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying he is showing the evidence of love for others. So we need right belief, which is found in Scripture. But it's got to hit our heart. It's got to hit our heart and change the way we live. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And then not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. Then verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith in Jesus alone. But it's, it's, not, it's not salvation by works, but it's a salvation that works. It then is carried out in real life. So what, what do we say as we look at this claim that the hypocrisy of, of Christians proves it's not true? We would say all those things that are done not in a loving manner, that's not of God. That's not the heart of God. The religious person is looking for loopholes, ways to get around it. Kind of like when you do your taxes. You're trying to find the loopholes. Me too. That's okay. But we're trying to find, people do that with religion. What's the minimum I have to do? What are the things to avoid? Where is the line? I remember in high school, that was the question we asked a lot in dating relationships, you know, because we were taught accurately, you know, don't have sex before marriage. And we're like, okay, well, where's the line? Because I want to know the line and go like right up to it, whatever that line is. What's the wrong question? That's the religious question. Rather, a heart of love for God, the question is, God, what would honor you the most? What would glorify you? Because I love you, that's the way I'm going to live. That's going to be carried out in my life. If it's all about love, the Bible says that God is love. What is love? Because in our current society, there are those saying, you know, Christianity is about love, but they take it to a place the Bible doesn't take it. Love, often now in our culture, means you accept anything. That's what love is, is, is being used to mean now. If you love somebody, it means not only do you not tell them your religion, but you can accept that theirs is also true and their way is also okay. Well, here's the thing. That's not love. I mean, this, this idea in our culture of tolerance, meaning don't share your faith, tolerate, not just allow other people to believe, which we do, we have a freedom of religion, but accept that their way could also be true. That there's many ways. That's what our society is trying to say is love, but yet that's not loving because if there is truth, isn't the loving thing to share the truth in love? I mean, if you had a, if you had a friend who was up on a cliff and said, I can fly, and I'm going to go jump off with the loving thing to go, hey, whatever works for you. <laughs> Knowing they're going to jump off and the loving thing would probably be to tackle them, hold them on the ground and say, you can't fly. Let's jump off something shorter first to, to test it out. But the loving thing would be to help that person understand the truth to save their life. So the loving thing for us as believers isn't to just stay quiet, isn't to say, oh, you can believe what you want to believe and we believe what we want to believe. I mean, we do have the freedom and we should have that freedom. But the loving thing is to come alongside and share the truth with people while we evidence it in our own lives. Again, we want to be an example. This is in your notes. Let us be an example of the heart of God, of his love. Draw near to Jesus and allow him to change your heart and then act on the love he gives you. The gospel's true. The Holy Spirit does change lives. I could just go through examples in this room of people who have been changed by Jesus. There's something different than they were before. But as we look at the society or at the church at large, there's a lot of things where you can look at and go, that is not of God. And now we're not in the position to judge those and say they're not saved. But I'll tell you this, there are many pastors that are not saved. 
There are many blind people leading other blind people that really don't have the heart of God. Let's, let's be different. Let's let Jesus change us, fall deeply in love with him, and then let him love in and through us. We're going to take communion, but I want to read some out of 1 John. Because 1 John, I think, describes this extremely well. Because here's, here's, here's a glimpse behind the curtain of the, the preacher. What is the one thing I want to do when I get up here and share God's word? I want you to fall deeper in love with Jesus. If I could do nothing else, I want Jesus to get more of you. The last thing I want is to go through this and we, when we look in the mirror and feel guilty and go try and work harder, go try and be better. That's not the right answer. The right answer is that we come to Jesus. Let him change us. His love will change us. We abide in him. We talk about that often. We abide in him. We walk in the spirit and let him live in and through us. In 1 John, John writes this. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What he's saying there is that when God's love is in us, then when people see us, they're seeing God. That's God's way. That gives me chills. That's always been his way. In the Old Testament, Israel existed because God wanted the other nations to know him. And he said, you are going to show me to the rest of the world. They didn't do a great job. But now Jesus has come and he gives us life and God says, you are going to be my method to show my love and myself to everybody else so that they could be saved. Jesus says that God desires none to be lost, but for all to come to repentance. Verse 13 here, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Right theology, right doctrine. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And he ends with this. We love because he first loved us. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And as we do, we are remembering the love that Jesus has for us. We're remembering that Jesus came in flesh and died for us. And it's his love. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's that love that can change our hearts to be like him. So let me encourage you, as you come up and as you take uh, the Lord's Supper during this next song, uh, think about yourself. Is God's love being lived out in and through you? Is there sin you need to confess? 
Or maybe you look at this and you realize, I don't actually love God. I don't actually love others. I need to be changed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're going to have people available to pray with you in the back. Go back there. And this could be the day where you give your life to Jesus. You experience his life-changing love. And then you can be a change agent for others. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your love. I'm sorry for myself. I'm sorry for the church and and for Christianity, how often we have um, done damage to your name by our lack of walking according to your will. But I thank you that you're bigger than that. I thank you that you are sovereign over that, that we can't thwart what you're going to do and we can trust you. Jesus, thank you for your love. And I do pray, I pray, I, I beg, I ask desperately that you would change us, change our hearts at the deepest level to love you most of all. That there would be nothing we wouldn't do for you because we love you. Because of what you've done for us, we give our life back to you. We love you. And then I, I ask that the city would see it, that our neighbors would see it, that we wouldn't hide this in a box that we wouldn't take this lamp that is the light of life that you give and put it under a basket, but that we would put it on the top shelf, that we would be on top of a mountain proclaiming you, that others will find you because of us. God, as as we're moving toward Easter, uh, we are anticipating you to do great things. We want to see baptisms. We want to see marriages healed. We want to see lives changed. We know that you want the same thing. Use us. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.